0: and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Bentley Allen of the Transition Accelerator and Derek Eaton of the Smart Prosperity Institute, who are authors of Canada's Future in a Net Zero World, Securing Canada's Place in the Global Green Economy. So welcome to the interview, gentlemen.
1: Great to be with you. Thanks for having
0: us. Yeah, thank you. Look, the way I'd like to introduce this is that energy media has for a long time been talking about how Canada's strategy, uh, you know, energy transition strategy has to be founded on two basic principles. One is mitigating the risks to and mitigating the uh, decline of its current energy economy. And I think I'm thinking primarily of oil and gas here, uh, and as well as taking advantage of the opportunities that are created by the emergence of the clean energy economy. And from our perspective, the 2020s are kind of the disruptive decade of the transition. We've got all of these, I mean, hundreds, thousands of new technologies that have been in, you know, in the marketplace for 20 or 30 years. Now they're competitive. Uh, they're starting to uh, push some of the older technologies out of the marketplace. And so the, the, uh, the sector, the energy sector and other parts of the economy are going to be disrupted now for, uh, it will be very disruptive over between now and 2030, 2050. And it seems to me that there isn't a lot of time, but basically the window's open now to take advantage of those opportunities. It's not going to be open for that much longer. Maybe 2030, maybe 2035, but Canada has to move now. And that's not our strength. We're the muddlers through, right? So the first part of your, uh, your study talks about strategy. And so Bentley, maybe I'll turn it, I'll ask you, uh, when you talk about strategic approach, what do you mean?
2: Yeah, thanks for the question. And I'm, I think we agree with the sentiment that Canada's strategy up to this point has been quite risk averse and that perhaps the biggest contribution we're hoping to, to make here is really to push for a shift from that risk averse strategy, which really ends up focusing only on things that we know are already going to be commercially viable, or in fact, we're subsidizing already commercially viable operations, um, which we don't actually need to do really, right, um, towards one that is much more acceptant of risk, but at the same time, isn't trying to Uh, do everything, but rather is adapting and experimenting as we go along. So let's shift from a sure bets only risk averse um, strategy to one that is experimental and adapted to the conditions that we see arising, as you put it, in the technology markets. So absolutely, we agree that this is a disrupted decade for technology markets and any bets that we make today or any investments that we make today, we're going to have to revise those um, as technologies appear. That's one element of the strategic approach, right, is to take into account uncertainty to look forward through the fog, through the clouds of the energy transition, um, but to be able to adapt to that. So that's one aspect of the strategic thinking. A second aspect of the strategic thinking is really thinking about our position as a small open economy. That puts very specific pressures on our economy and creates very specific imperatives for us to respond to. And so a strategic approach has to start by looking at that technology misc, looking at our specific position within the global economy, and saying okay how are we going to do this and then we have to think about what are our domestic values what are our domestic priorities um do we want to lean into critical minerals because they have a security or a strategic dimension or are we going just for adding value added to our economy in a traditional analysis of how we maximize the economic impact of our investments we have to balance those kinds of things with that geopolitical context and that's really the start of thinking strategically, taking all these things that you can't find an optimization function for, right? You're going to have to struggle through and adapt and work out as you go. That's the beginning of a strategy, and that's what we're uh, proposing uh, that Canada do.
0: Derek, I've got a question for you that arises from an interview I did with Tony Siba, the former Stanford economist and the founder of RethinkX. Now, I know Siba gets short shrift from economists because they see a little bit of a snake oil salesman as one Expert I interviewed called him. Nevertheless, I think on the you know on big questions, uh, he often is pointed in the right direction. We'll say, and one of the issues that he makes is that when you have electricity gener- electricity that, uh, generated that is close to the you know the marginal cost is zero, and you've got like you have with uh, solar in California often, so you've got this huge amount of abundant clean, uh, low cost uh, electricity. That changes everything. That now changes the industries that you can develop. It changes uh, it changes the technologies that you're able to to deploy uh, and so on. And of course Canada has right now, we have uh, about 83, 84% of the grid is is relatively clean. It's either hydro or nuclear or uh, something like that. And so, and, and we have lots of solar resources particularly on the Prairie, some in Ontario. And we have more hydro resources does does that uh resource all that abundant clean potentially low-cost electricity give us a big leg up and change our strategic approach
1: well that's a great question uh, definitely uh yeah we we have this in canada we have this uh, we have this advantage of already having a relatively clean grid for an industrial economy but are we are we taking advantage of it enough yet that's I think that's the question we're trying to pose here. We, we, we could leverage that advantage to, uh, if we think strategically, as Bentley was just describing, to think about the industries where, for example, in, in, where in, in global markets in, in, in 10 years, is there, are there going to be increased demands for uh, you know, products with a relatively low carbon footprint? Um, and we're already in Canada in in a in quite a good position to supply those to the extent that they're, um, you know, to the extent that they're based on um, their the production is based on elect- use of electricity. Um, so you know, if we look at some of the the opportunities we identify in our report, um, you know, that's the kind of thing we, we we kept in mind, and and we and we certainly see. Not only is we have this advantage, but we need to we need to further build that out. That in the estimates of uh, of how much you know of electrifying uh, you know the, the sorry the demands on 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 increased scale of our grid um, you know being sort of in the order of two or three times what it currently is. Uh, we need to be thinking about that now, so that if we want to exploit this advantage we already have, we're not exploiting it as uh, really yet. Um, but markets are moving quickly internationally. Um, you think you see, you see the rise in, in uh, you know, sort of dramatic rise in attention to ESG considerations by investors. We can leverage that uh, with our grid and, but we have to make plans to build it out and build it out cleanly.
0: Well, Bentley, my next question is for you because there's the, uh, a section of the study that describes a survey uh, that you undertook and maybe you could describe Uh, the survey and what you learned from the survey.
2: Yes, we did a a traditional uh, academic, uh, what's called in the academic literature, a chip study uh, with a number of uh, experts from across the country. And what we had them do um, was uh, we gave them a thousand chips And we asked them to allocate those 1,000 chips across economic opportunity areas, across the entire economy. We started with the IEA's list of technologies that are needed for Net Zero. And we started to winnow those down into a list of places where Canada had some opportunity to play. And uh, we gave them this list and we allowed them to allocate their their 1,000 chips across uh, these 30 or so opportunities And that was really the starting point for our research. And we we both gave them that quantitative exercise. And so we produced this quantitative data from those experts. And we talked to everybody who we could get our hands on. We talked to market experts and analysts. We talked to First Nations communities. We talked to um, academics. We talked to people who work inside the government at the federal and the provincial level. Um, And we talked to some policy advisors as well who, and basically anybody who had taken a real structural look at the economy as a whole and who had some expertise Um, in weighing the different engineering and techno-economic models uh, that that we might bring to bear here, but also people who knew the politics, right, because these things aren't just techno-economic or engineering-driven. And that survey uh, yielded a kind of ranked order of the sectors, and then we subjected each of the sectors to um, a rigorous kind of five-part framework um, where we looked at Uh, Its role in a net zero economy, the level of technological maturity it was at, whether it was emerging or more more mature, ready for deployment, Um, as well as whether or not there were natural resources in Canada that would give us a long-term competitive advantage, whether there was innovation capacity in Canada that would give us a long-term advantage, and finally, what the market potential was, and that was a key criterion for us, which is that you need to have that market demand, that market pull, Uh, in order to have a successful uh, possibility um, of getting this. So we took both the survey methodology and this uh, desk analysis assessment framework, and we combined those together to to produce our list of the top seven.
0: Well, Derek, the next question is for you. And uh, you came up with seven priority opportunity areas. And and some of them I expected, uh, some of them are unexpected, quite unexpected, actually. Uh, So let's start with the first one, medium and heavy duty vehicle manufacturing. Uh, and I've said for a long time that Canada should, if there's an opportunity in automaking going f- in the 21st century, it's not in light duty, it's in medium and heavy duty. And particularly if we can build vehicles that are uh, designed for niches for, so for instance, we're big forestry uh, economy, oil and gas, you know, we're operating in a, in a cold rugged in, in, environment. Can we build expertise in that and do making those kinds of vehicles? So, what did you have in mind, Derek, uh, around medium and heavy-duty vehicles in terms of the opportunity? Uh,
1: exactly what you're describing, Markham. Uh, you know, we 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 look at the we looked at as Bentley was describing. You know, our framework. We looked at where are uh, you know where are the opportunities in in global value chains that are forming now. Uh, and we obviously gave some consideration to, um, to light and passenger zero emission vehicles. Uh, and we're not saying there isn't a role for Canada there, but it, we, we, those value chains are already moving, already forming. And there are a lot of major international players um, that uh, are pushing that. Does Canada have an opportunity to own some of that industry? We think we actually have better opportunities on the medium heavy duty vehicle. Um, segment. Uh, you know, we have a number of startups, uh, particularly, uh, you know, in, 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 in BC or elsewhere, but the Quebec-based Lion, for example, um, which is designing, building and assembling components um, all across you know, the, uh, uh, you know, for, 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 for the vehicles. Um, and there's other examples, uh, on, you know, on, if we look up the value chain um, in Ontario, Electrovia. Uh, Is uh, is a pure play lithium ion battery manufacturer. It's got over 100 plus patents. So we have this. We we have a number of startups that are focused more on this on this segment of the vehicle chain. We have a number of demands if we think downstream. We have a number of demands in our sectors, whether it's the mining sector, whether it's the agriculture sector. Think about zero emission tractors. Uh, We talked about buses. You know, uh, various other. Vehicles uh, are possible, and that's those value chains haven't formed to the same extent internationally, right? As some of the some of the passenger vehicle ones, um, we have uh, we can also leverage upstream, um, you know, some of our the, the minerals that we have that, that could feed both these types of value chains. But um, we can try and put that all together.
0: Well, let's talk about number two, and I'll I'll address uh, this question to to you, Bentley. Uh, and that is alternative proteins. Now I, I've run across this once or twice, uh, on but in a very broad, general way, uh, the idea that we can get away from growing meat or, uh, and basically make uh, protein. So, uh, what did you have in mind for alternative proteins?
2: So our category of alternative proteins includes both um, vegetable and plant-based proteins, uh, such as the Impossible Burgers and and those kinds of products, uh, as well as uh, cell fermentation, which is in the very early stages, really. That's only at lab scale. Um, But we think there's opportunities in both. And I, I would say that there's opportunities in both because, and this is a kind of key underlying theme of the report, which is that in Canada, we do a very bad job of adding manufacturing value added to our resource industries. So whether it's in mining or forestry or agriculture, we tend to ship as close to the primary material as possible overseas. And what we were looking for was in each of the main resource sectors in this economy, could we find a downstream market that would both contribute to net zero goals, that is reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And here, of course, we're displacing meat consumption. So there is a gain on greenhouse gas emissions there. Um, Could we displace uh, greenhouse gas emissions and get a strong market pull? And uh, alternative proteins provides that. It provides a nice market that is growing globally, uh, where Canada can focus a lot of the things that have to happen in agriculture. When we took a deep dive into agriculture, um, what we really noticed is that there were so many tasks that needed to be aligned, that it would be very difficult to make strategic choices in the supply chain unless we had a downstream market that was calling the shots. And so alternative proteins provided us with a solution to do this. Um, And and it's one, actually, that Canada is really well positioned in. We have a number of of really strong companies in alternative proteins. I would shout out AGT Materials, Saskatchewan, and Raquette, both of whom have closed lots of deals in this space and are producing the materials that we need in order to be a leader uh, in this space. But we also have mature food manufacturers in this country who know how to do uh, these processes at scale, and there could certainly be an industrial strategy that tried to bring uh, the producers and the manufacturers and the startups together to really drive this. And this is already happening at Protein Industries Canada, which is one of the super clusters. And so this also allows us to segue a little bit into the part of the report about how you do industrial strategy. So Protein Industries Canada is a strong, you know, what we call public-private partnership. It's where industry and government come together. It's a place where they meet. So actually, Alternative Proteins already has uh, the infrastructure that would be needed in order for us to really drive in this sector. And we could start on an industrial strategy for alternative proteins tomorrow. Um, so it's one area where we're particularly excited about the potential growth opportunities, as well as uh, the ease at which we could deploy this. Uh,
0: Bentley, follow-up question. I've, I've noticed that various governments in Alberta comes to mind immediately because they, oh, I think it was in the fall, last fall, uh, uh, implemented a strategy to uh, bring startups, to scale them up, uh, to uh, uh, exploit national and international opportunities. And they have, I, I think they have kind of an accelerator model and there'll be some yeah. financing available and the usual things that go into an accelerator. And when I read it, my first reaction was, that's not a whole lot of money that they're putting in. And this seems to be a, 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 a Canadian uh, trait, when we do something, we always underfund it, And we're always worried about failure. And we don't provide as much support as the, the you know, the, the funded company uh, really needs. And so when you're talking about alternative proteins, which is very much just getting off the ground, and you do want to scale these up uh, over time, uh, is that a fair, a fair assessment of, you know, the kind of programs that we put in place, to support scaling up?
2: Absolutely. I've heard the line before that we, we give firms just enough to fail, um, which is the worst possible amount that you could give firms. Um, I do think that that, that that is a theme, but we also, I think, would caution that we're not necessarily saying that we need to increase the scale of investment in the energy transition. Of course, we would like to see as many public dollars um, uh, put to the energy transition as possible, Um, but we also think that we could get a really a lot of value added without necessarily adding new finance that is to say that the kinds of things that we're doing the way we take a strategic approach is just as important as how much finance we're committing to it the first thing there is just we need to focus we can't do we can't give five dollars to all 30 industries on our list it would be much better to give you know sixty dollars to the top five um that kind of thinking is anathema also in Canada, because it's considered to be, you know, unfair or, or undemocratic or something like that. But it's what we really have to do. And it's what we that kind of focus is what we're going to really need to, to grapple with. Um, and the second thing I would say is that um, in a lot of some of these industries, like alternative proteins, they are ready to scale. So actually, where we are is is CapEx. And, and the the industry, what it needs is a way to merge that CapEx with long-term R&D in order to create a competitive sector over time. So what we need is not just a one-off grant to a single firm or a one-off grant to one of the players in that, that sector. That tends to be the way the government support gets doled out. And what instead we need is, is an effort to build the entire ecosystem. And that's what Protein Industries Canada is meant to do and does at this point, I think, is ready for further financing in order to take it to the next level where it can actually uh, deploy and push forward.
0: Now, Derek, uh, I want to talk. The third item on your list is greener aluminum, and uh, so I want to talk about that, but not too much because I want to get to number four fairly quickly. So, can, what can you tell us about green aluminum?
1: Um, well, aluminum is an interesting one. Uh, we really, you know, there's a there's there's going to be increasing demand for uh, aluminum uh, in the world. It, uh, for example, production's uh, projected to grow. I think almost uh, almost two hundred percent, but like one hundred seventy percent by 2030. by twenty thirty. Canada's already uh, you know a major producer of, of of primary aluminum. We we think looking at looking at uh, you know looking at the range of factors that we took into account. Um, Canada's real potential lies in uh, the smelting. Um, That's an energy intensive process, and that can be decarbonized um, over the short run, Uh, even like, so, you know, in the near future, um, using the the clean energy grid we were talking about, particularly uh, domestic hydroelectric power, relatively close to some of the smelting operations. Uh, So, there's going to be a lot of competition in the global aluminum market, the green aluminum market. Uh, but if we if we invest now, there's going to be uh, you know, there's a there's a good chance that Canada can establish a, a position if we don't move um, quickly enough, we're not likely to be able to increase aluminum exports over time uh, other competing jurisdictions will probably um, move faster so um, you know there's there's also. There's going to be an increased move in international markets for aluminum that's sourced from recycled materials. That's uh, requires only uh, uh, about a tenth of the energy as, uh, as producing aluminum from mine materials. So it's um, it's 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 an interesting one in that there's a balance we see. We see potential, but you can't you can't you can't uh, over uh, overplay it.
0: Well, let me ask you uh, about number four here, which is mass timber. And I know BC has been doing a lot of work in, in doing, say, high, wooden high rises, that sort of thing. Is that what you have in mind?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And as you talk about BC, I just was reading an article. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in the Netherlands and I just read an article. The plans have been approved in Amsterdam for uh, a new residential development of I can't remember how many thousands of homes. Uh, in a city where there will be a requirement the cities the city planners are, are really excited about a requirement to make use of mass timber in this construction um, you know in case you or your you know the audience isn't really aware there aren't a lot of trees in the Netherlands um, or forestry industry to supply that uh, we're looking now at the global you know, geopolitical changes um, uh, so the, the <coughs> uh, forestry products from Russia are also becoming a bit um, uncertain. Canada has definitely uh, an, a, niche, uh, a niche that uh, we can develop. We have—we um, obviously have the primary resources, as we've been talking. Do we have, you know, do we have an interest in developing the value add in this area? We have some research um, uh, capacity uh, and initiatives, and a few small, uh, few small firms. Um, But this is definitely an area where, um, if we want to develop this or take advantage, there's a concentrated effort um, that's required that's not taking place, um, not taking place yet.
0: Let's talk about uh, green chemistry for a moment, because this is another one that I hadn't heard of before. And I'm very curious to know more about it. What can you tell us about green chemistry?
1: So green chemistry covers a you know a wide range of, of of products if we think about the need to transition off um, petrochemicals uh, as a source of, uh, of feedstock for a wide range of products you know so beyond um, fuels you know plastics a uh, uh, you know, range of chemical products fertilizers uh, even battery metals um, so maybe there's there's clearly some uh, there's some potential on, on aviation fuel. There's even an initiative, uh, I believe, that's starting up recently um, around that. But how can, uh, how can we, uh, as a country, with this, with this vast primary resource uh, production uh, capability, how, uh, how can we harness that, um, build value-add further downstream, uh, and and serve some of the uh, some of these 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 transition sectors, if you want to call it that. Um, we we have you know we have a lot of um, we do actually have a fair bit of research capacity um, across the country uh, that's that's working on this. The you know there's the Green Center Canada, headquartered in its accelerator, headquartered in Kingston, um, with hubs across the country, um, and. Uh, but we can really build this up and if we and this is if we have you think about the engineering capacity we have in the petrochemical sector and how we can, uh, if we're thinking about skills and jobs, uh, where is some of the most relevant opportunities um, for transitioning that um, that labor uh, green chemistry uh, is definitely definitely one of them.
0: Well, I would imagine then the Calgary Mayor Jody Gondek is going to be knocking on your door uh, soon to find out more about this because this is one of the questions at Calgary in particular. I mean, it, I, you know, I used to live there and, I, and I've been reporting on, on the oil and gas industry for a long time. And they have a tremendous uh, our research and development ecosystem there in the uh, university, uh, in the, the various companies, there's a lot of innovation. And so if I understand correctly, uh, Derek, I, that there is expertise there that can be then leveraged into expanding the green chemistry sector.
1: Definitely, and, I, and I, people, Alberta and Alberta innovates. So they 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 do recognize this, and we're not, uh, um, you know, we're certainly not identifying something. I think that's that's really unexpected. I'm, I'm guessing maybe this the you know the the, the label we chose um, <laughs> green chemistry, but it, it captures a number of different uh, a number of different uh, segments.
0: Now, Bentley, I'm going to ask you about hydrogen, which is number six on your list. And this is a hot topic uh, in Alberta, but in other provinces, uh, too. And the experts that I've talked to uh, think that uh, in the short term, blue hydrogen, which is made with methane steam reforming and natural gas, uh, can produce hydrogen at a price that can compete, maybe, I don't know, three, four dollars a kilogram. Uh, and it'll probably be 2030 before uh, green hydrogen made with, uh, with electricity and, and electrolyzers uh, becomes economic. So what, what did you have in mind for this sector?
2: Just exactly what you said, uh, which is that the world's going to need a lot of blue hydrogen uh, in order to get emissions down in this decade. And green hydrogen certainly needs to have a place in the net zero economy of 2050, there's going to be a window of time between 2030 and 2050 where blue hydrogen gives way to green hydrogen as the dominant source of hydrogen and it's difficult to know exactly what year that's going to come in i've heard aggressive forecasts as well saying that you know we won't need a lot of blue hydrogen as of 2030 but i'm a little bit more skeptical of that because of the works that we did on the grid um, once you start to think about how much Green energy, the world needs to add to its electricity grids just to meet current demand, not even thinking about converting oil and gas to the grid we're going to add that to the grid right we're basically adding all of our vehicles to the grid. And, by the way, in Canada, if we really are going to take advantage of our ESG advantage, uh, we need to build the grid out those forecasts of two to 3.5 times the the amount of green electricity that we currently have in Canada do not account for any structural change in the economy. So if Derek and I get our way and, oh my goodness, we're building manufacturing all over this country using clean energy, that clean energy is not in the current forecasts. So what this suggests is we're going to need to be looking for areas in the economy that we're going to be using for hydrogen, not eliminating them. I'm currently doing a roadmap, just like the one that we propose, for battery metals. And as soon as you start to study nickel in detail, you realize there's not enough nickel to decarbonize class A freight trucking. Uh, And so you need to run that on hydrogen, even though the techno economics would favor electrification of that particular vehicle segment. Um, so those kinds of intersections as well are part of our report in the sense that once you start looking at each of these sectors individually, you start to see, oh, the case for hydrogen is highly dependent on what happens in these other sectors. And that's what a truly national industrial strategy looks like, doing each of these sector strategies, taking them serious, looking hard at them, and then seeing, oh, these are all interconnected, actually, because we're building a system here, not a bunch of sectors.
0: Now we come to the seventh one. And and this is one that I uh, identified uh, two, three months ago is one that, that uh, energy media wants to do a lot of reporting on and gain a little expertise around, and that is carbon capture utilization and storage. And the we came at this from the oil and gas side, particularly the oil sands. And, and many of our listeners will know that the oil sands last summer came out with the uh, net zero by 2050 pathways initiative that will rely very heavily on CCUS, probably up to about 60% of emissions reductions. And of course, they want government to pay $50 billion of, of the $75 billion bill. And so while CCUS has tremendous potential and Canada is a leader in it, uh, I think that's acknowledged globally, I, I'm worried that in addition to all the good stuff that it will do, that it also has the potential to lock in sunset industries and lead, that lead eventually to stranded assets and and you know, the taxpayer loses money on the, that they put into the infrastructure and then all the money it has to pay to clean up the stranded assets. What's your take on that Bentley?
2: Well, I think that there's a lot of, you know there's a lot of merit in that that particular view. Um, I think that CCUS, i would just change the conversation because i think that that's an intensely political conversation and it's a different one in canada i think certainly that oil and gas needs to pay its share fair share in the transition and the oil and gas companies that i think about across the world that i see as being leaders here are those that operate or that are really taking an orsted style approach where they see that this industry is is going to get diff, more and more difficult even though they've got a real boost at their back from the uk crisis at the moment and, and coming out of COVID. Um, And they really see that what they need to do is transition their business models. And one thing that companies in the oil and gas sector could do is really build CCUS in in a scaled way because, again, it involves all of the expertise that they're currently good at. Um, uh, I don't think of, uh, and again, also our academic, my academic academic colleagues uh, published a letter that was coming out strongly against a 45Q style um, incentive for CCUS. And, you know, I regarded a, a lot of that conversation with, with a little bit of caution and and skepticism, Um, because again, I just think that the conversation is really just too divided at the moment. Um, The fact is that CCUS is a much bigger and more dynamic sector than many people uh, appreciate. Um, And although it's been difficult to get commercial operations going, there's no questions about the underlying technology and its ability to perform. What we need are applications where it really makes sense. And what I don't think is gonna make sense long-term is running natural gas plants with just you know, CCUS on them, or or just using it to prop up the oil and gas sector. Where I see CCUS is having a real role to play right now is in heavy industry, in decarbonizing the hard to decarbonize sectors like cement and steel and aluminum, um, where uh, where there are process emissions, not just fuel emissions, but process emissions that also have to be captured. And then the other thing that I think is underplayed in the current conversation, or that is hidden by the current debate, is the importance of that U in carbon capture utilization and storage. And that's really, again, where the intersections with green chemistry are really important to notice. What are we gonna do with these CO2 streams? Well, it matters a lot whether or not we're gonna put it into sustainable aviation fuel, whether we're gonna turn it into other kinds of carbon fibers and carbon products, Um, that's really gonna matter a lot. So I think of CCUS as being an incredible opportunity to put at the center of decarbonization systems, as opposed to thinking of it purely in this political play and in this political way that that many folks have really been, been putting it.
0: I want to provide a couple of examples, uh, Bentley, from uh, the, the interviews that I've done recently uh, about the U in CCUS. So one is Lanzatech, uh is in a it's an American company uh, and it's got a microbial process that takes uh, uh, clean electricity and CO2 and turns it into sustainable uh, jet fuel. And they've already got a, a pilot project that will be built in 2024 in Sweden with the SAS, the Swedish uh, the swedish airline and then there's a company i interviewed uh attached to the capital power project in in alberta and they're going to make carbon nanotubes out of, out of the co2 and already they've got like lululemon makes some of their clothing out of those carbon nanotubes it goes into into apparel so if carbon nanotubes then becomes the building block for other materials uh, anything from you know uh, fabric to i don't know building materials whatever Does that not open up the range of possible industries that could be developed uh, once you're, you know, creating nanotubes and who knows what else out of CO2?
2: Absolutely. That's where I start to get really excited about the energy transition, um, which is in these moments where we start to imagine, oh, what if energy is so cheap that we don't meter it again? Um, What kind of structural effect will that have on our economy? What happens if materials get so cheap because direct air capture and CCUS are producing chemical streams and carbon streams that can be used in all these incredibly general purpose ways that drive down the cost of materials across the economy. What if the energy transition leads to a basic permanent economic stimulus that is of course going to bubble under rising adaptation costs, geopolitical instability, and other things that are going to cost us a lot of money. But they also could be a real source of, of, uh, not not to be too sanguine about any of this, we're we're, we're headed for a couple difficult decades, I think. Um, But I think What we need to do with CCUS, again, is there are lots of these plays. There are lots of these opportunities. And the point is not to go and pick one firm and say, "Okay, you're going to be the next shell. The point is to divert some of the funds that we're currently directing towards commercial operations and late stage foreign automotive and uh, automotive manufacturers divert some of those funds into demonstration funds so that these kinds of firms can do big scale experiments right now instead of waiting for three or four years to get finance. Let's get them demonstrations now. Let's make a mess. Let's break some eggs. And then let's make some really, really amazing low-cost omelets.
0: Well, I want to talk now about the, the last part of your report, which is the uh, four-part framework for a strategic approach. And the first one is establish a vision of Canada's place in a net zero world. And I have to tell you gentlemen, uh, when it comes to vision, uh, it ain't Canada's greatest strength. Uh, Derek, do you want to address that?
1: Well, coming coming back to Canada after having worked for about 30 years in, in Europe, um, I'd like to disagree with you, um, but it's a bit difficult, um, Markham. It's, uh, you know, there's, when I look at, uh, when I look at what's been what's been undertaken, in, uh especially at the level of the European Union, also some of its member states, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, you know a more strategic approach and 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 having a, a longer term vision, um, you know I think we have something to learn, and we can learn, and that's you know in our report we we reference. Uh, we reference some studies and some examples. Uh, and it, I've worked and lived there with, with with what's happening there. Bentley has spent time, um, you know, as a researcher studying how how uh, Europeans have done it with InnoEnergy, uh, studying um, the UK um, uh, the UK's wind strategy, and uh, and also other countries like like East Asia. So, uh, what we do with our report is we try and you know summarize some of these learnings in a four-part framework for strategic action in Canada. And the first part of that is establishing a vision uh, and what working, working through what we think Canada's place will be in a global green economy uh, later this century. Uh, then we identify the top opportunities. Now, we've just been discussing those. Uh, and, and I think it's worth emphasizing at this point that we have those top seven opportunities in the report. We might be wrong on some of those. We fully admit that. Um, what we think is important is that people, uh, is that more people understand that we need the vision and we need to have the conversation about what these opportunities, uh, what these opportunities are. From there, we go on to um, you know, the, the need to develop sectoral strategies, um, roadmaps, uh, initiatives that will, you know, chart the, the actions that are necessary to drive industrial development and the transition. Uh, and, uh, and this, you know, the fourth element of the framework is, 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 uh, is the all-important uh, all one of, of thinking about the collaboration uh, across the public and private sectors, also between different levels of government, federal-provincial lines, also involving other stakeholders, of course, First, First Nations, Um, and having an approach to promote experimentation uh, and learning. um, Because this is not about uh, just, say, picking winners. Um, It's about placing bets, uh, but placing informed bets in a strategic way and learning from those and adjusting and adapting as we go along.
0: Well, I couldn't agree more. And I have to tell you that there are any number of conversations that Canada has to have Around the energy transition, uh, now Alberta, for instance, it hasn't even got a climate plan anymore, and it hasn't got any anything approaching an energy transition strategy. Uh, I think at the federal level, Canada is a little bit better. Uh, you know, the federal government at least is engaging with some of these some of these issues. Um, but there are lots of things that we need to have a national conversation about. And one of them would be the, the you know modernizing the power grid. Uh, we've already referenced the, the amount of extra power that's gonna be required by 2050. And, but the, B, the, uh, the provincial governments are in control of electricity and they are basically 10 little silos, 13 silos if you count the territories. And they don't talk to each other. And you know BC and Elberg don't even wanna talk about more interties and more east-west trade. You know they, It's off the table. And it's a very disjointed kind of uh, awkward conversation that really n- that yields poor results for the amount of uh, even the little bit of energy that, that's put into it, and never mind have this at a national level at, at you know at a, a robust scale. And then we've got, and that's just one example. There are all kinds of other ones that come out of the you know the work that you you've done here. So how do we have the conversation? And so Bentley, I'm gonna address that to you. How does Canada have the conversation about the thing, you know, what needs to be done uh, uh, that's suggested by your study?
2: Well, I think just going back to the question of vision and it's true that Canadians are quite self-effacing, but as I mentioned earlier, I've been involved in this exercise with the battery metals community. And the first step of that exercise led by the great folks at the Natural Step um, and the Energy Futures Lab, Uh, was to create a bold, ambitious vision for the sector. And the vision was stunning. The vision was there. The industry knows exactly what needs to happen, and they know exactly what they would like the government to do. So I actually don't think we have any shortage of vision, and I don't think we have any shortage of people willing to do the work. Um, But the work that we have to do is the work of collaboration, and I think that's really hard work, and it's detailed work. And it involves, um, in our report, uh, and in our estimation and in our uh, study of international best practices, it involves creating and supporting what we call intermediary organizations, which are these organizations that can operate between the public and the private sector, between First Nations and the federal and the provincial governments, between civil society and academia um, and other folks and bring them together to be these spaces where people can interact and meet and coordinate um, because those, kinds of, those are the places where we need to have these conversations and they need to be independent. They can't be traditional industry associations, which are just basically stumping for the most powerful firms in the room. They can't be government organizations that are so beholden to the political winds of the particular moment or the particular day. They have to be independent. They have to be run by citizens who care about bringing together industry and government, and they have to be charged with a mission to set targets and drive everybody towards those targets. And I don't think that there's anything unCanadian Canadian about that. And I don't think I, in my own day-to-day work with these folks doing this work in the trenches, I don't see there any being any great obstacles there. We just quite literally need to come together and find the spaces and fund the spaces um, that need to do that work of, of bringing us together. And we also don't need a grand vision. We don't need to have like a big overarching, this is what Canada is and what it means and all of that we can just start in the sectors by breaking eggs. We can just start and get messy and then tie things together as we go, because that will actually be the most flexible and adaptable thing. But what we mean by a vision is right now, the government's growth model, their basic growth strategy is to attract foreign direct investment, which is mostly run and operated by foreign firms. And this creates structural weaknesses in the Canadian economy that have been well known since the 1980s. We have low business expenditure on research and development. We have low manufacturing value added. And this is precisely because of this particular model of economic growth and economic development that the that the Canadian government has put forward. So instead we need one that really thinks hard about how we're going to build homegrown capacity, how we're gonna build an ecosystem and how that ecosystem and that homegrown capacity is gonna be leveraged into leadership in the global net zero economy. And so that's what we mean by a vision, It's just the willingness to try something different, to do something different, to get messy, to work together, and to figure it out as we go along.
0: Well, getting messy sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, and, and it's really interesting how often I hear, and now this comes, I, I have to say, from the oil and gas sector, where there's a lot of complaining about the fact that the energy transition is messy. And I keep pointing out to them that messy is, is a, a feature, not a bug in an energy transition. You can't disrupt the energy system, especially at the global level, and do it in a nice, smooth, controlled, planned you know, uh, way. It, it uh, doesn't work that way. The very nature of disruption is, is messy. So I guess that's part of the conversation we need to have uh, as we go forward. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for this uh, excellent study and look forward to doing some uh, follow-up interviews with you down the road.
2: Thank you, Mark. be you, Yeah, Thank you, Mark. Great. Okay.